This morning we focus on how God has placed a thirst within us that will only be satisfied by him. And the psalmist reminds us of that, calling us to worship with these words. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. May our hearts and souls thirst for God and give God his praise as we join our voices and lives in doing that very thing, giving God praise today. Let those who are able stand, but come now together, let us worship the living God. My friends, hear what the prophet Joel spoke, words that the apostle Peter knew so well and and proclaimed on Pentecost. Yet, even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. My friends, remember this, know it. Because God so loved the world, he gave his own son in Jesus Christ, we can know that we are loved and forgiven and made whole by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Tell it to the world. In Jesus Christ, we have new life because in him alone, we are forgiven. Amen. Well, 23 years. Wow, where did that go? 23 years ago, this last Friday, we rolled into town with a seven-year-old in tow and a yellow Labrador retriever. Some things never change. And uh, we, we sold our house 20 minutes before we left San Diego to come up here. And we put a contingency on it in case we didn't get the job we'd have a, so we'd have a place to live in when we got back. But it worked. And so Monday we looked at houses and Tuesday we bought a house and Wednesday we went home. And the rest, they say, is history. But I want to thank you all for your faithfulness across these 23 years. It has meant so very, very much. And we've, we've had a great ride and God has been very faithful and that will continue in days to come. This morning we continue to look at John's gospel and we're looking at hydration Uh, and the need for hydration. And boy, do we know about that in in this part of God's world as he's placed us in this beautiful high desert. So listen as I read for us about an encounter that Jesus has as he has been talking about what his true mission is. God's word comes to us from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Listen as I read it for us. Now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, Jesus left Judea, that's the southern part of Israel, and started back to Galilee, the northern part of Israel. There's three sections. But he had to go through Samaria. So Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria. Jews do not have 
things in common with Samaritans. That's putting it lightly. They cannot stand them. Talk about the Hatfields and the McCoys. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, Lord, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to Jesus, Lord, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, Lord, I see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship God worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim these things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he. I am he. Anybody ever questions you about the deity of Jesus? Take him here. I am he. The one who is speaking to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God take this amazing word and quench our souls from the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and finding us and speaking to us this word of deep quench. Let your good news come and find us now, not only in word, but in power, in your Holy Spirit, and with the full assurance that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be truly acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock, you are our redeemer. All these things we pray in your strong name. Amen. You know what's interesting about John, and this is a good example of it? 
He's the only one of the four gospel writers who points this out. They probably all knew about it, but John emphasizes this because John is emphasizing the very literal human nature of who Jesus is as a man and the cosmic nature of who he is as the God of the universe. He holds those right together. Jesus, the God of the universe, being so utterly human. Why? Why? Because then and now, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, the boondocks, the ends of the earth, Jesus said, I've come to bring hope and I've come to bring healing and it's needed then and it's been needed across the ages and healing is needed right now. So to get the, the full picture of what it is that Jesus did and why John tells us about this, we need to take into consideration just what Samaria is, not just where it is, it's in between the three parts of Israel. But we need to get a picture of Samaria. Now, I've been to this well. This well still exists. Isn't that interesting? You can still go to it. Church is built right over it. It's about 150 feet deep. Jim, Mary Lynn, I think you were there. Yeah. It's at a fork in a road. Very fascinating. Between hope and no hope. Samaritans, as I pointed out, were hated by the Jews. And this woman was hated by her people. So she's in a tough, tough place. Bad enough being a Samaritan in confrontation with the Jews, but now she's not even accepted by her own people. Remember when Jesus talked about the Samaritans in Luke? The good Samaritan. You know why? To shame the Jews. Even this person that you've rejected has done something for your people. Jesus shows us, this is the key, Jesus shows us that the gospel, the good news, the message of hope is for our most despised enemies. Whoa. It is for the least of the least. The gospel is for those who need it most. It is for the outcast. It is to unite us. The gospel is to unite us in showing how we all need the gospel that Jesus Christ is. We all need who Jesus is. We always have. We always will across all the ages. Samaritans, you may not know this, Samaritans were Jews who had given up on being truly God's people by marrying the enemy. They had married into the Assyrians and they had essentially forgotten about their identity as God's people. But you know what? Samaritans were not unusual then or now. Samaritans were the world. Half in God's kingdom, half in the world. And too often, guess what? You know who they represent? Us. Half in the world, half in God's kingdom. Not really sure, trying to work both sides of the street and ending up with nothing of either. But the exciting part of this story, the exciting part of this story, and the reason John includes it is because it's so filled with grace. It is so filled with the abundance of what we all need. There is so much for all of us that is like Christmas two months early. We get to open that present. And it's in opening it that we become ones who get to give that Christmas child present to someone who doesn't have it. But we've got to open it in order to give it. Jesus goes to Samaria. He purposely goes through a place that as a Jew, he would otherwise avoid. Jews didn't go through Samaria. 
They, they went twice as far to get from south to north. They'd go way around it because it just wasn't a healthy thing to do. And it was spiritually repulsive to them. It was emotionally repulsive. But what does Jesus do? He knows the Pharisees are after him, and he's expeditious, and he goes right through Samaria because he knows she's there. He knows they're there. He knows that there's going to be an encounter, an encounter here that's going to make a difference. Why? Because he turns on his supernatural sensors and antenna? No. Because he loves. And he knows who is least loved. And he comes for them. That's why he came. Jesus came to our Samaria of being out of bounds. All of us get out of bounds. We go places we shouldn't be. We stay away from places we should be. Jesus came for that. Samaria is still out of bounds today, by the way. It is in the West Bank. It's in a Palestinian enclave. Seldom do we go there. In fact, we've only gone once in all of our trips to Israel. It's off the beaten path. Jewish guides can't even go in there. It, it, the Israeli government will not protect the guides. If they go in there, you're on your own. We're not coming in after you because we know what's going to happen. That's what it's like. And on top of it all, who does Jesus encounter when he goes there? A woman. Not culturally cool, particularly in that she has come to the well by herself, not with the other girls, in the middle of the day, which meant, you know why she did that? She's an outcast among the outcasts. Even in her sorority, if you will, of Samaritan sisterhood, she's like, uh-uh. No, you're out. We don't know why. Something had happened. We probably do know why, because Jesus said, you've made some bad decisions, young lady, haven't you? Yeah. Haven't we all? Don't we all? That's why he came. Because she had made bad decisions. Because we all make bad decisions. There she was, an outcast among her own own culture. She was the lowest of the low, and there are times that every single one of us knows in our heart of hearts we are among the lowest of the low because something is not right. Jesus knew this. He could read the signs, and he also knew, as William Barclay suggests, that he knew this because he had taken time to talk to her. He had, this conversation probably went on for quite a while. We read it, and it took two, three minutes. They were probably there together for half an hour or so. The, the, the disciples had gone to get lunch, had gone to Subway or something, you know. <laughs> They're having a time to really get to know one another. And Jesus wanted to know her. He asked her for a drink. What does this mean? He gave her standing and dignity by saying, I want to have contact with you. In fact, he says, I want to drink out of the same container you have consumed water out of. Cooties. Worse. You know, people, you know, culturally and otherwise, they wouldn't do it. He's, he says, give me a drink. And that's why she was so astounded. Are we? Are we astounded that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, wants to have a conversation with us about our deepest, darkest secrets that really are no secret to him at all, right? especially Jesus, about the deepest place in us that is thirsting for compassion, thirsting for having 
So a soothing, deep, deep drink of that which will satisfy? Are we aware that Jesus says, yeah, I know. I know where you're hurting. I know what's, what's missing. I want to come and, and have a drink with you. Now, Jesus knew this woman had a drinking problem. Literally. When he asks her for a drink, she effectively says to him, where is your bucket? Because you're sure not going to drink out of mine. I know you, you're a Jew and you're a man and you don't want, you're not going to drink from a, a Samaritan outcast woman's bucket. You, you'd never wear that, run that one down. She, she knows. She says, where's your bucket? Jesus has told her what he tells you and me. He says, if you knew, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is asking you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She tries to change the subject. Where's your bucket? We try to change the subject, too. Uh, do we need, how about those uh, Dodgers, huh? <laughs> she says, you don't have a bucket. You don't even have anything to contain what it is you're asking for. But listen to how Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. He basically says, I don't need a bucket. Young lady, I don't need a bucket. You don't need a bucket. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, no matter how big their bucket is, 55-gallon drum, Costco-sized container, whatever, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. See, what Jesus is telling us is that the water he is describing is what he is and who he is. And that it is living water. It is not stagnant water. It is gushing water, water that comes up under pressure from which you do not need a bucket. Have you ever seen one of those perpetual drinking fountains? You don't have to turn the lever. There's no pressure involved. It's just springing up, and you could just get a drink. Maybe you haven't, but that's what he, he was and is. You see, that day in Sychar, which is now Nablus, the well was 150 feet deep. We will, when we go to that well, we'll pour water down into it. And I, I think we have to count to five before we hear splash. That's how deep it is. The water Jesus describes is the other way around. What he is and who he is comes to us. We don't have to dive down deep. We don't have to go into the dark. We don't have to go someplace we can't get we don't have to go get it. He says by encountering us, those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will come to them. A spring of living water gushing up to eternal life. Oh yeah, you can get a drink of water from this well and it might sustain you for the day, but it's not going to keep you alive. What I'm going to be for you, young lady, church, world, is that which will give you life forever. Now, some, somehow we allow ourselves to miss this water and we, we go about trying to find water 
on our own. Like this woman. We could keep trying to keep our buckets full of stale and even stagnant or infectious water when ironically we are being offered the sweetest, cleanest, freest flowing, life-giving source of water we could possibly have. Water that even the TRPA would accept. (laughs) Philip Yancey writes in Christianity Today of an encouraging truth that speaks of this, of of a young man named Mike who works among the homeless. And Mike told Phil that homeless people, having hit rock bottom, don't waste time building up an image, trying to conform, trying to be someone they're not. And they pray without pretense, a refreshing contrast in what he'd found in some other places. He said, I asked for an example. He says, my friend and I were playing guitars and singing as the deer pants for water, Psalm 42, that we used for our call to worship today. We were singing, as a deer longs for water, so my soul longs after you. And when David, a homeless man we knew, started weeping and sobbing, that's what I want, man. I want that water. I'm an alcoholic. I want to be healed. See, this woman and you and I and the world are homeless alcoholics, if you will, until Jesus is our home and until Jesus is our well. Jesus is that living water, but often we miss that because we are too busy trying to fill our buckets with something less and something worse that does not satisfy, that only poisons us. We live in a culture, even a world, and where even as the church gets shoved aside, people believe in God, they say, but they don't know the living God who wants to give living water that will quench our deepest thirst forever. This woman was our world. And maybe even you and me who at times said to Jesus, oh, oh yeah, I I believe in God. I I know, the Messiah, he's coming. I haven't lost sight of that. But when he does show up, I know he will tell us everything we need to know. And what does Jesus say to her? What does he say? The same thing he says to you and me. I am he, the one who is talking to you about your thirst and how it can be quenched. See, we've all come to think we can fill our own buckets like this woman Jesus knew had filled her buckets with relationships, five of them, six counting the guy she was with. And they had all left her high and dry, or I guess we should say low and dry. But here's what we can miss. Jesus was offering her what he offers you and me, a love and a life that gushes up, that never leaves us parched or poisoned, that satisfies deeply, that fills our deepest longing, such that we stop trying to fill our buckets with a bucket list of stuff that never or worse turns, into, turns us into addicts and are only imprisoned by that which we consume. Let me give you an example as we wrap up. In a, in a great book, Sahara Unveiled, William Langweich tells a story of an Algerian named Laglag. 
and a companion whose truck broke down while they were crossing the Sahara Desert. Sounds like a good time, doesn't it? They nearly died, nearly during the three weeks they had waited before being rescued. As their bodies became dehydrated, they became willing to drink anything in hopes of quenching their terrible thirst. The sun forced them into shade under the truck where they dug a shallow trench. Day after day, they lay there. They had food, but they did not eat, fearing it would magnify their thirst. Dehydration, not starvation, kills wanderers in the desert, and the thirst is the most terrible of all human sufferings. Is it any surprise that Jesus had this encounter? He knew what our deepest suffering is, dryness of the soul. Physiologists use Greek-based words to describe the stages for human thirst. For example, the, the Sahara is dipsogenic, meaning thirst-provoking. In Laglag's case, they might say he pro- progressed to eudipsia, ordinary thirst, or more to the point, you meaning good, good thirst. We need to be reminded to drink. The Sahara reminded him, you need to drink the real thing. Though we go to, from that to hyperdipsia, meaning temporary intense thirst, and then to polydipsia, which is sustained excessive thirst. These are the stages of severe dehydration. Polydipsia means the kind of thirst that drives one to drink anything. There are specialized terms for such behavior, including uridipsia, drinking urine, or hemodipsia, drinking blood. For word enthusiasts, it's heady stuff, but nevertheless, the lexicon has not kept up with the technology. So as I've, I've tried and cannot coin a suitable word for the drinking of rusty radiator water. But that's where they got. Radiator water is exactly what Laglag and his assistant started into when good drinking water was gone. In order to survive, they were willing to drink, in effect, poison. That's our world. We're so thirsty, we're willing to drink poison, thinking it's going to keep us alive, when in fact it is slowly killing us. Many people do similar things in the spiritual realm. They depend on things like sex or money or power, trying to quench spiritual thirst. Unfortunately, such thirst quenchers are not. They are in reality spiritual poison and physical poison, a dangerous substitute for the living water that Jesus promised and that Jesus was and is. But the good news, my friends, is that Jesus is the opposite of the Sahara. He produces a eudipsia, all right, but it is a good thirst. It's a thirst for the living God, for knowing him personally. He is that river that never runs dry. He is that spring that gushes up. He is the one who knows all of the things that torment us, and he comes to quench those things. He knows our deepest longing and wants us to put our roots down into him when all the other sources have failed us and have poisoned us. He will be the one that gives life. Here's the love that God has for us. He came to rescue us from the desert where we have become stranded by the things 
this world has given us. The good and the not so good and the horrible. Here is the love that he is for us. In conclusion, in a little book I, I commend to your reading that I read again and again every few years, Wind, Sand, and Stars. You may know the, the writer's work, The Little Prince, Antoine Saint-Exupéry, an, an airmail pilot in the 1930s who flew over the deserts. And he describes Bedouins who have been taken on a trip from, of all places, the Sahara to the Alps, where they taste the sweet, refreshing water of a waterfall. And they are transfixed. They can't leave. Their guide says, it's time for us to go now. Uh-uh. We must leave. Uh-uh. And they say, we must wait. And the guide says, wait for what? And they say, the end. When the waterfall stops flowing. They'd never seen one. They figured the show would be over. No, no. They were, they were waiting, St. Exupere says, for what this woman thought would happen, what we all think will happen. And so they were looking for something less when the best refuses to end. That's Jesus Christ. He is that alpine waterfall of sweetness that will not stop flowing. And we can stand there transfixed and go, my Lord and my God. Or we can turn around and go back to the Sahara and try and figure out our own way. They were waiting for that moment when God grows weary, St. Exupere says, when God grows weary of us and shuts off his grace. Guess what? It ain't happening. God will not stop. We're the ones who can turn around and walk away from it. God says, whatever's going on, whatever's parching your soul, whatever has left you longing and deficient, I will not stop pouring out my love for you. God loves us more. Those Bedouins looked at their guide and they said, your God loves you more than our God loves us. Whoa. You know what? That's true. Because the gods of this world don't love us. But the God of true sacrifice, the God of the universe who came in Jesus Christ, loves us more than life itself. He is that waterfall. My friends, this is precisely why Jesus came to be the source of life and sweet hope that does not turn off, and he is calling you and me to know this and reflect this refreshment to a parched world. He is calling us to turn all of our dryness over to him. All of our memories we think can never be healed. All of the dreams that have never come true. Jesus is offering to be that gushing spring of refreshment and healing and renewing we so need and can get nowhere else. So let me ask you something. Where's your bucket? Maybe it needs to be thrown away. I think we all need to throw away that worn out old bucket that we've been dragging around with us trying to find enough and simply stick our face right down into that spring of Jesus Christ and drink and drink and drink because Jesus came today to encounter us and asks each of us to let him fill us up in every day, in every way for his glory. May we do so. And may we learn as we do day by day what real 
refreshment is so the world can know it too. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's such a simple thing we can take so for granted, and yet we become physically dehydrated thinking, oh, I can always get a drink. I can always go pray. And then we end up sick or sad or lonely or hurting because we do not drink moment by moment, hour by hour, what you offer so abundantly and freely of yourself. Teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit to let that be our only source of hope Always, in your precious name, we pray. My friends, remember, as we go from this place, wherever the wellhead is, wherever God has called us, we go nowhere by accident. Where we go, God is sending us. Where we are, our Lord has a purpose in our being there. Because Jesus Christ indwells us, he has something he wants to do through us where we are. May we believe it and therefore go peacefully, gracefully, joyfully in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion and the fellowship and the equipping power of God's Holy Spirit every single step of the way. Amen.